Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Joining us now on the Cracked Interviews podcast is a former Duke and professional tennis player and multifaceted ESPN personality. Today's guest tackles every challenge she faces with an enviable winning mentality. She recently launched a new podcast called The Next Chapter. It focuses on the struggles athletes face in ending their careers and transitioning to what comes after. And since we will be live at the ITA indoors this weekend, it feels truly poetic that we are joined by a national indoors champion. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Prim Seripapat of The Athletic. Prim, welcome back to the Cracked Interviews podcast. Thank you. Wow, that's quite the introduction. Was that the poem? or That there... was the attempted poem. Okay, that was good. It was good. <laughs> Gosh, poetically. I, uh, I figured since you were kind enough to come on for the second time, it was the least <laughs> I could do for you. Man, I don't know what I'm going to get if I come on a third time. Uh, <laughs> I'll go strictly me, haiku. Yeah, don't ask me to do poems. I haven't done a couple poems since high school, so that, that was way too long ago. Yeah, no, I, I would never ask you to do that, but of course. Uh, no, I do appreciate you coming on. I can only imagine it's been a busy time because, as I mentioned, the next sure. chapter, your new podcast for the Athletic Podcast Network, Out and About. Uh, I'm a big fan, but to any of our listeners who may not be listening already, can you tell them a little bit about it? Yeah, thank you for tuning in. Yeah, so the next chapter is kind of takes a psychological analysis on what happens to athletes, particularly how athletes cope with life transitions. And, you know, I kind of explained in the introductory episode, uh, an athlete will face multiple transitions over the course of their career at the macro level, also micro level. But the one that I'm really focused on is the end of their career, retirement, what happens to these athletes once sport is no longer a part of their lives. Um, what happens to their identity. It's something that is extremely personal uh, to me, something that I really, in all honesty, struggled with and walking away from tennis. So, yeah, that's that's really what it's about. We had the chance to talk about this the last time you were here, but it does feel like you are, if you don't mind me saying, particularly well-suited for this podcast. And when you're talking about something as serious as, you know, the personal changes that go on in a professional athlete's life when they step away from the sport, I'm curious, how do you massage that line between, you know, asking them the tough questions, things such as, you know, how do you transition in your finances and so on and so forth uh, without, you know, pissing them off? That's a, you know, that's a really good question. The only, I've realized that there's a couple factors probably contributing to me getting, getting the opportunity um, and and having the ability to get these athletes to open up. I think number one, it helps that uh, I played at a pretty high level. Um, So there's just that, there's that commonality and I'm kind of, I'm sort of part of the, uh, whatever you want to call it, the sorority, the fraternity. Um, So Immediately, you know, there's been a few. I interviewed 20 plus athletes, and there were only maybe like two or three that I didn't have any relations with. And the moment I was able to drop the, you know, I played at Duke and I play at the professional level, the the wall immediately comes down a little bit, um, and they're less guarded. And so they're like, okay, you got you get some of it. And then more importantly, um, I, I share my own struggles and and what happened to me when I walked away from sport and like really struggling emotionally and the loss of identity, the loss of community and being really unhappy with how my career ended and just sharing some of those issues and being vulnerable with them gives them the space and the freedom and permission to be vulnerable themselves. You know, because I I think the one thing that's just like been a really good lesson for me is like, I can't expect my guests to open up if I don't do the same thing with them. It's, it's honestly just like any relationship, especially in like an intimate relationship. You can't expect your partner to really open up if you don't really extend them that same courtesy. 
And I think that's just like the biggest thing um, in, in getting to getting these athletes to open up. Yeah, I, you know, I went with a poem. It's something I've done on other podcasts. That's my attempt to get our guests comfortable. Uh, so that really resonates uh, with me and I think mm-hmm. with our listeners as well. But uh, for you, and, uh, you know, I did listen to a couple of the podcasts, obviously, thus far. You've had Doug Baldwin on, I believe, Jonathan Vilma this week. Mm-hmm. Um, but you mentioned in that intro that in you tried to do a similar podcast in 2015, and mm-hmm. the timing just wasn't right then. And I think for 10 Tennis fans in particular, uh, with the way social media has gone, uh, Noah Rubin's behind the racket. We've seen the personal stories, the struggles so yeah. many of these athletes go through. And so mental health, you know, not only in tennis, but in, in basketball, in football, in all of these sports has, uh, you know, the awareness of it, the importance of it has certainly risen over these past years. Can you explain why now was a better time maybe than 2015 for a podcast like this? Uh, well, from a personal perspective, perspective, it was just sheer growth and maturity. Uh, I think that the one thing that I've really learned and just being in the public eye and being a sports anger, anger, and having done it now for 17 years, who you are on air should be a clear representation of who you are as a person. The problem with that being is you know, and if you're in your early to mid, even to late twenties and early thirties, like you're still trying to figure out who you are. And if you don't know who you are, you can't really be yourself on air. And, and even just in 2015, I was still, you know, I'm 30, I just turned 39. So I was still in like my mid thirties, but I was really still going through, through some stuff and figuring, figuring some things out on my own. Um, some of it really was still tied with, um, you know, I've been outspoken about my coping mechanism, my eating disorder, and how that were, there were still some lingering issues connected with my tennis career and how it ended. And that didn't come to the surface until 2016 when I was going to therapy. So at the time that that podcast launched in 2015, I was just still kind of like wrestling with some stuff. I was worried about being the perfectionist. Um, I was worried about being the flawless sports anchor on TV and um, and also, more importantly, the landscape with regards to mental health has really grown since then. Um, you're seeing a lot of athletes come out and be really outspoken about the things that they're going through. And, and I just think those two things, personal growth and the mental health landscape catching up. Yeah, and for tennis in particular, because it is an individual sport, I suppose in doubles you have another partner out there, but even then, you guys are your individual players. You're working on different things. So much of your training in tennis has to be tailored around you, the person, you, the player. Uh, so from a tennis perspective in particular, that transition away from the court, I, I do feel like um, – Tennis does have some differences maybe from other sports, but uh, can you sort of explain in general, you know, the transition you went through? Again, I know we talked about it a little bit last time, but what it's yeah. like when you step away from the sport? Uh, a black hole in your life, uh, <laughs> to put it bluntly, maybe poet- poetically. Um, yeah, it's it's hard to find the words, really. I mean, this is... When you talk about career transitioning and retiring, retirement among athletes, you know, a lot of people, maybe non-sports fans will say, like, what's the big deal? It's just, it's just sports. But when you played, when you love something and you've played it for your whole life and you reach a pretty high level that requires kind of almost an obsessive work ethic, when that's gone and removed from your life, like, it almost feels as though you have nothing anymore. And don't forget that I think a lot of these athletes and and really there's something unique about tennis because it's one of those weird sports that you could train for eight hours a day. It's kind of similar to gymnastics and um, figure skating. It's an individual sport, you know, with basketball or soccer, football, you can only practice so much. You need you need your teammates. So that kind of puts some restrictions on it. But you know, when something really dominates your life and affects little, every little branch of it. I mean, I started at seven years old, so it affects my family dynamics. It affects how my day is structured, where I go to school, the people I hang out with, how, what I'm eating, what time I go to bed, what time I get up, whether or not I can go out with my friends on the weekends. Um, it literally affects every little string of your life. And so once that's extracted, there's, you know, 
a lot of athletes feel a little lost. And for me, I, I had started my preparations for life after tennis, you know, at least a couple of years before I retired because I was at Duke and I went through three surgeries. So I, my body was starting to fall apart and I prepared, but I think I wasn't prepared for the emotional roller coaster that comes with retirement. And that, that was the most difficult thing to, to handle. I think, you know, even for those people who played a sport and didn't pursue it in college or didn't pursue it professionally, I can speak for myself. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember finishing that last high school tennis season and, you know, I was fortunate enough that we, you know, humble brag here that we won our state title. But then that next Monday, you're like, OK, like I'm not playing in college. Uh, I, I really uh, my whole life I've been like, all right, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I've got to go hit after school or whatever. And it's like, now what am I doing? So that's the reason I am such a fan of the podcast. I think it's not just something professional athletes deal with but any athlete deals with how do you you know what do you do when you're moving on from sports and uh, you know again it, it, I, I think you, what I would argue and you know maybe if I saw a psychiatrist they would as well that this podcast that I have uh, the interest I have in tennis this is me manifesting my interest in that it was my channel I figured okay if I can't play the sport I still want to talk about it and I'm curious in terms of you know coping mechanisms because mm-hmm. so many you know every athlete athlete is different, but have there been certain things, certain trends or tendencies you've seen maybe both positive and negative from athletes in post-retirement, you know, in your initial discussions with other people who are, who have gone through this? Oh man. Yeah. In terms of the coping mechanisms after they retire. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so there's a number of things that arise. Um, one of them is definitely pouring that same obsession into something else um that is on the more quote-unquote positive side because on the surface it just looks like okay prim has prim has found her next passion and she's doing really well professionally and she's successful in that but if you if had you dug a little deeper between the age of 22 to let's say 28 for me you would realize that I had just basically replaced my obsession with tennis with another obsession. And that's not necessarily a healthy thing. Unfortunately, in American society, we like to reward the people that burn themselves out and work 88 hours a week. And that's just not a healthy uh, lifestyle, nor is it sustainable. Um, So that's, that's one part where you see people basically replacing that crazy obsession, passion with something else. The other part is just kind of masking it. So there, there's a number of ways that we can numb any sort of feelings. Um, it might be partying. It might be through uh, drinking, partying, sexing, drugging, um, you know, spending money. It, it's a, it, it runs the gamut of, of things. Um, and that's probably been the one thing that that's been really interesting for me. And the athletes, I, I would say that talking with the athletes who are a little bit older, maybe in their 30s, 40s, 50s and older, and ha- that are further removed from retiring have better perspective because they, um, they're a little, there's a little bit more separation in time, you know, and time allows us to create, to have a little bit more objective view on our own journey. So that's, that's been really interesting. Yeah. And uh, one of the things we will talk about, I mentioned at the top, the ITA indoors uh, for tennis specifically, uh, you had the chance to go play at Duke. A lot of top players, especially more recently, have been able to pursue at least some time in college before going on to professional careers. But for the majority of tennis players, if you're pursuing a career in professional tennis, you don't have a college degree to fall back on. And, you know, in football and basketball, some of them get to spend time in school, but whether they're focused on the school in those moments or the athletics is I'm sure a debate we could have on another time but you know you had something to channel yourself into but how often have you experienced for these professional athletes that you know the lack of college education or the lack of academic intellectual passion outside of their sport immediately Mm -hmm. after retiring is a big problem for them you know what it's not about the academic preparation because you know, I think a lot of people would agree with me that when they look back at their college experience, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not applying statistics for real life. 
So I'm not using, I'm not using like my freshman 101 class to help me get through life. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think it's just about the real life preparation that would probably come from potentially a college experience itself, not necessarily what happens in the classroom. But I think a lot of that preparation has to come from the parents and coaches. And that's why this is a really important topic because it's the parents and the coaches that have control over how the athlete is using sport in their life and how they are experiencing it. And that's, and I would say that's just like the, the really important lesson with, um, with that. Um, I, I think athletes have said, and they are all in agreement in the 20 plus interviews that, that I've talked about that they wish people had prepared them a little bit more for this transition from sport, but it has nothing to do with the academic background. It has everything to do with financial literacy, especially for those athletes who make a lot of money um, in, in short bursts and for a short period of time, and then they're, they're out of professional sports. Um, and also just like logistical career transitioning, like where do they start? Um, how do they plan for a new career? How do they, how do they identify their next passion? And after that, once they identify their next passion, like where do they begin? Um, so I, I would say just the, just like the real life stuff that I think athletes really need help with, which is why you're seeing coaches for the most trying to at least, trying to prepare their athletes. And also a lot of these professional leagues, whether it's the NFL, NBA, um, I know a lot of the, honestly, a lot of the leagues over in Europe, they do a really good job having career transitioning support systems and resources for athletes. Yeah, it, it, the same way I think about, uh, you know, it, not even, you're right, the class is irrelevant. I'm sure there's, you know, a history 101 class I took in college that I, I can't even tell you what it was about. Um, <laughs> but but you mentioned the things like financial literacy, you know, budgeting for yourself, or even something as small as going to a career fair. You know, that's something I had to do when I was a junior, when I was a senior in college. And for a lot of these professional mm -hmm. athletes, you don't need to know to a, go to a career fair if you know what career you're pursuing. Uh, so there's that aspect as well. Well, but you mentioned that, uh, a big thing there, and I'm sure uh, it's, and I know it's something you've talked about uh, in your podcast, financial literacy. How much of the anxiety for these professional athletes come from the fact that it's, you know, where is my next paycheck coming from? Because there are people who still depend on me to provide for them. Oh my gosh, it's huge. It was the number one in a survey of over 100, or sorry, in a survey of over 800 former professional athletes, the single biggest factor in terms of causing anxiety post-retirement was finances. And the misnomer with that, the misunderstanding with that, is that, oh, they look at these athletes, and I was like, oh, they're making millions and millions of dollars. But these athletes get paychecks. For, take, for example, the NFL, which is, it's just a crazy experience. A lot of them are in their 20s, young 20s. And let's be honest, how many young 20-something-year-olds are totally responsible with their financial money and thinking about what they're going to do at 50 years old, right? So imagine getting a check for $118,000, one check. So you think like you're going to have a lot of money, you're going to get 16 more checks of these. But what you don't plan for is that you have to make that $116,000 check and the other 16, 15 more, whatever it is, last for potentially, let's say, 20 years, maybe for the rest of your life, probably not for the rest of your life. But then what they don't plan for is, oh, my third year in the NFL, which I thought I was going to do for 10 years, I end up tearing my ACL. So those four big flat screen TVs that I could have, I could totally afford at the time, um, I guess I have to return those. That's a real story. That's a story with a first round draft pick and offensive lineman when I was in Miami covering the Dolphins. He literally went out and bought four flat screen TVs. That sounds stupid, but when you get like such a huge lump sum and a multi-million dollar bonus, like, yeah, it in the grand scheme of things, it sounds like something that you could afford. But all of a sudden, like a year and a half later, his NFL career is done. That I think a lot of these athletes are wish, look back and say, like, I wish somebody would have been, would have helped me. And even for the people that, that they asked for help, they got burned by some of these financial managers, like people trying, really trying to take advantage of them. It's, it's a big issue. Um, and uh, the Greg Oden, the former, uh, former number one overall pick, Greg Oden, I, I know a lot of people 
know about him. His episode will be coming up in the next couple of months. And that's one thing that he really talks about is the lack of financial literacy. And once basketball was no part, no longer a part of his life, uh, all those bridges were completely torn down. And so like these athletes, the, the, the stories are crazy. I mean, you have, they're supporting not just their immediate family, but they're supporting cousins, friends, uncles, aunts, people coming out of the woodwork that they haven't talked to in years saying like, hey, can you just loan me like four grand? And then they'll come back and say like, hey, come on, you know, like, don't you, don't forget where you came from. Like, just drop me a couple, a couple more grand. And these are like real stories and these, these athletes get cornered. And it, it's, um, it's just, it's a lot more complex than people, than people think it is. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. I can only imagine the social pressures an athlete faces when he is, you mentioned making a $116,000 check. I, you make $116,000 and you, I, you can find 16 friends to spend it with you pretty quickly if you want to. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, you, you can imagine that sort of thing happening. But uh, you mentioned, you know, these players wishing they had, you know, other players or just resources to turn to, to help them with these sorts of things. Tennis in particular, you know, amongst many issues facing the sport, one of the big one they don't have a players union and i think we saw that uh, you know the impact of that early on in australia with all the concerns with the wildfires and the weather and we saw players collapsing because of the smoke and the asthma and so i'm curious how much of a role do you think it is uh that you know player to player options uh, players unions things of that nature can play and will play in helping make uh athletes transition out of sport better moving forward Oh, yeah. I mean, gosh, that, that's really important. I mean, first of all, like the, the tennis dynamics, it's um, it's complicated because it's one of the few sports really where, you know, you have the women's side and the men's side not under the same set of rules or not under the same uh, governing body. And so they're having to operate under different kinds of leadership and um, not having a player's union really puts competitors in a difficult situation because you need somebody to fight for you and fight for your rights. You know, the, you just mentioned the, the brush fires and at the Aussie open, I'm like, that is a really dangerous situation. When you have players dropping like flies because of the smoke is so bad. And then the, don't forget that these players like, okay, well, walk away from the tournament you can't walk away because nobody your peers aren't doing it and that could potentially be you know a ten thousand dollar check you also need those points like that might be that one time you maybe you only got into two out of the four grand slams this year you got into qualifying and this is your one chance to get into the main draw like it's it's a really tough situation um now I completely, I, I got distracted by the brush fire situation because that was so overboard. I completely forgot your question. <laughs> uh, no, that's fair. And no, just to continue on uh, with the ATP player union, I mean, it's the same thing. You, you talk about the, these players walking away. Well, as long as Federer, Djokovic, and Nadal show up, it doesn't really matter what everyone else does because these tournaments will make enough money. And we talk about the financial uh considerations for these athletes look the top guys in tennis are fine if you're top 50 you're definitely making a living but the problem is the guy who was you know 160 in the world for his entire career a 12-year span which that's really freaking impressive in any other sport if you're the 160th best player at your craft you're probably going to be you know compensated well enough yeah. uh, but in tennis that's just not the case because they have no collective bargaining power now again tennis is uh, sort of it has its own problems compared to other sports but what role do you see players unions player to player counseling having uh, in improving these athletes preparations for life after their sports you know I, I suppose it falls on some of the players responsibilities but it would have to be rather than like rather than peer to peer because you can't really get advice from somebody who hasn't been through it and who's going through it themselves you need advice from somebody from a veteran you know so 
I, I think it falls on the veterans, but tennis is so unique. I mean, some people, you know, they go to tennis academy, some go to college, some go to college part-time, some skip college and go to the pros. You also, there's the international global aspect of tennis where like you can't, you know, you could offer advice to somebody from Germany, but their school system and their their traditional workforce is so different over there versus compared to here in America. But I think the biggest, um, the biggest thing that I really want to accomplish with my podcast, even though I'm doing this with athletes and for athletes, my message is directly to coaches and parents. And I'm going to keep saying that. And, and you're going to hear me hear the passion really come out because <laughs> it is because athletes, when they get into these sports, they are young, innocent children and they rely on parents and coaches to help guide them and prepare them for life. Not just to become the best athlete that they can be, but to become well-rounded individuals. And this is where this is where things really get kind of complicated and dicey because, and, it, and it's all really about educating everybody. Um, and that's why I'm doing these, these athlete interviews. So I'm hoping that a parent or a coach will understand the difference between playing multiple sports until the age of 12 versus specializing with one sport and starting at three years old and not doing anything else in life. You know what I mean? And so that's why, I, I don't know, I, I just think that it's really important to bring in the parents and to bring in the coaches and also various leagues, whether it's the professional league, but more importantly, probably at the end, at the NCAA level and, and at the college level, because the professional leagues that let's just say NFL, NBA, WTA, ATP, no one's real. It's a business. No one's worried about developing athletes and, and what they're going to do after sport. Let's be honest, because it's all about, it's all about sports entertainment and money. So the message then is drawn towards the next level at the institution, at colleges and universities. And there the athletic departments and professors and also the teams, they have resources to help um, help guide these athletes and prepare them for for life after sports. Um, so the good news is, though, universities, especially D1 universities in the Power Five conferences, they're they're on the beat for this. They're starting to recognize some issues among student athletes, diminishing confidence, anxiety, stress mental health issues. A lot of it has to do with the, de the increase in demands of training. Um, and that's why you're starting to see a lot of these programs, whether it's like the Dukes of the world, UNC, Ohio State, uh, whatever it is, they're starting to have mental health programs for the athletic department, nutritionists, um, sports psychologists, mental health counselors, therapists, whatever it is to help make sure these athletes have everything they need to prepare for when they leave when they leave sport and when they leave college. Yeah. That being said, I would still love to spend two weeks at the ATP university because I know they do the little <laughs> crash course there. Yeah. I feel like that would be a blast. Um, but no, it's, uh, yeah, that I, you're absolutely right. It, it is something that comes to parents and coaches as well. Not putting all of the eggs for your kid, for the player you're coaching in one basket, allowing them, uh, to pursue their different interests. And, uh, it's so funny. You talk about parent, uh, tennis, relationship and the relationship they have on the player they're coaching or you know raising uh we had an instance where someone who was coached by her father for her entire career someone who uh, obviously had one of the most magnificent careers of the 21st century in tennis caroline wozniacki mm -hmm. just retire at the australian open and you know we we can talk about her place in tennis history maybe at another time but you saw the relationship she had with her dad you know they were the the tears on her face when she was talking about how much he meant to her over the course of her career all of those different things what did you think what were you thinking about as you saw you know Wozniacki's final few matches in Australia yeah I guess the first thing that I would say and I think she she knows this but for the message for athletes is it's not about how you end because I think a lot of athletes get tied to how you go out and very few get to go out the way they want to no very few get to go out on a Super Bowl win or winning a Grand Slam. Um, and, you know, it's important to have the overall bigger picture of what you've accomplished over the course of your career. And for her, I just, I mean, I, I 
I saw it coming. You could just tell that she, she seems really happy and she seems very content with what she's accomplished with tennis. I mean, she's been doing this for 22 years, which is crazy if you think about it. I've been in the broadcasting business now for 17 years. So if anyone who is, let's say, approaching 40. Ready? Here's point, something fun for you. I'm 24 yeah. years old. She's been doing it for essentially a full Alex. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's a lot, right? And I think yeah. we forget that. And a lot of people are like, well, like, she wasn't really playing at seven years old. Yeah, yes, she was. Uh, I mean, and also keep in mind that both of her parents are former professional athletes. So her dad was a former professional football or soccer player. Her mom was actually on um, the national, the Polish national volleyball team. So very, very early in her life, her parents were, I don't know if they were necessarily gearing her to be a professional athlete, but when you have two parents that come from that background, they know exactly what is, what, what's required to reach the elite levels. But my point is, is that, I mean, she's been doing this for 22 years and she'll turn 30 this year. And I just saw for her, like it's, it's time. She seemed so happy. Her wedding was crazy. Her and Serena kind of like getting married around the same time and Serena being part of her bridal party and, you know, Carol having three different dresses and her now I'm getting into the fashion, but her wedding was like <laughs> amazing. She had like the most, she had, I think she had Stella McCartney design her own sneakers, like wedding sneakers. I mean, there were rhinestones and diamonds literally all over that thing. But she's always been to, into other stuff. You know, she speaks, she, she speaks eight different languages. She takes piano lessons. She loves soccer, boxing, football, baseball. She ran a New York city marathon. Um, and honestly, like, I think that the thing that really tipped, tipped her towards the edge of, in terms of like feeling at peace and walking away, um, I hate to bring up the personal stuff, but the one thing that I've, I've found out about my journey and other, other people's, other athletes journey is that your personal life does affect who you are as an athlete and vice versa. And I think that, um, when, once she was able to heal from the Rory McElroy relationship, you know, as we all know, kind of ended in a very tough situation. They sent out the wedding invites. He broke up with her. Two years later, she met, met David and, you know, who is now her, her, her husband, the former NBA player too. And so I think that just like when you meet the love of your life and you begin to think about having a family, and I know she's mentioned that Serena Williams is, is one of our best friends and watching Serena become a mother that's been on her mind. And so when you start thinking about the next chapter and it's time to let go of something, that's, that's what it's all about, right? A life transition is not just about new beginnings and new chapters. It's also about having to say goodbye to something else because we can't continue to do everything that we were doing in the past. So um, I'm excited for her. I do think that she's going to pull like a Martina Hingis thing. Like she's going to be back. She's only 29 years old and she's in great shape. She's going to come back. She's, she just needs like a really long break and she'll probably come back and play doubles. I could totally see her doing that. No, I love it. I, I will say, by the way, beautiful, subtle plug of the next chapter, which again, everyone <laughs> yeah. can find on the Athletic Podcast Network on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, wherever they'd like to listen. Yeah, for, for you, you mentioned that personal aspect. Yeah, of course. Uh, I will say I had a really cool experience of when I was at Cincinnati, I was sitting, uh, you get to, with a press credential, you get to sit, you know, wherever. And I was sitting directly behind both David Lee and David Lee's parents who had come out to the Western and Southern Open oh. to watch Caroline Wozniacki's match against Diana Yastremska. And yeah, you could tell David Lee, another former athlete uh, who is all, you know, you can see that in his eyes, he was feeling just as competitive as Wozniacki. I know that was a match she lost to Yastremska, but, you know, I, you could tell Caroline was getting frustrated with Yastrzemska and David Lee sitting in the grind saying rate of play ump rate of play like it's at the server's pace because he thought Yastrzemska was going to so and it was yeah and it was just I was like one my friend you're getting the lingo wrong like that that we don't do that here but uh it was yeah it was really fun to watch and yeah those sorts of things absolutely matter now you know 
you you had this experience as well where you came back after you had spent time out of tennis you played professionally and you know it's not like you were you won a grand slam and i say that lovingly by the way you did way better than i ever would um but no i didn't you, do anything i i yeah. did not my 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 comeback was the most melodramatic undramatic sad <laughs> comeback which only ended in surgery like my worst surgery out of all my athletic operations but I had a lot of fun. I'm not going to, I needed it to fill, fulfill my soul and I loved it. But yeah. yeah. Well, but, but so you talk about the, it, we talked about it last time you were here, the comfort that gave you just to know that you did go back out there. You gave it one more try up in those moments. And I think we saw for Wozniak because she went down five, one to Yastrzemska in that first set. And just, can you kind of talk about what it's, you know, the mentality you have to ha- you have as an athlete in those final moments when you know, things are coming to an end because she seemed to, you know, and it's her. It was, I think, Dirk Nowitzki last year when we saw him go on his retirement. The joy that yeah. some of these people play with, obviously, and it's, you know, it's sad to say now, given what we've happened, but Kobe's 60 points in his last game. Yeah. You know, can you talk about those moments when an athlete, you know, an athlete's final moments playing their sport and what's that, what that's like? Yeah, you know, I think every athlete, they have their own individual experience. Uh, for some, it's too soon. For others, they have a little bit more control. You know, so my career ended in college in a team environment. So that means that I wasn't necessarily completely dictating my own terms where, you know, what was Naki? She got to win a Grand Slam and she's a former world number one and she's been doing this for so long and she got to play until the age of 30 for the most part. And her, even though she dealt with some injuries kind of last year or whatever, but for the most part, she's stayed pretty much intact. So. Um, I, I think it's an individual basis, but in that last, in those last moments, that last match or that last game, I don't know if you're really, you're not thinking about winning or losing. You just begin to, you look up and you start to, it's almost like you put on the lens of what a five-year-old would see, which is just like sheer innocence and you pick up on every little detail. Because those are the little things that you take for granted when you're an athlete um, because you've been doing it for so long and you know there's going to be another match. But when it's your last moment, you might look up and you smile and you feel the weight of the tennis ball. You feel your body moving and swiftly and you have fun. You understand the butterflies and you understand that those butterflies, you'll never know. You'll probably never really get them again, not in that type of environment from you know, playing in a match, um, you look at the crowd, you'll hear the cheers, you'll hear the boos, and those things will be gone forever. And it's like, that's, you know, that's nostalgic and, and sad all at the same time. Yeah, and, and I do wonder for Caroline Wozniacki, you talk about her still being 29 years old, uh, had she not won that Grand Slam in Australia a couple of years ago over Halep, mm. you have to imagine she'd still be playing. So you know, I just think the so. Fin- yeah, and so the, yeah. the the fact that she has that title, it is everything for her after that. After all she's done in her career, she's been world number one. She's won Masters titles, all of the other things. To have that Slam as well, it definitely you know it must provide some comfort. Now, you talk about her playing again. I'm curious if she does not play again, if this is where her career ends. Um, and, you know, it just num- some numbers for you. Over the course of her career, some of the other players who have achieved the same things as her, uh, you know, the Kerbers, Azarenkas, the Ivanovichas of the world, all in that tier below. They're all really good, just they happen to compete in the era of Serena. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are your thoughts on Wozniacki's career? Where do you place her in, you know, the WTA's all-time pecking order? Hmm. One of those questions. Yeah, I just um, I figured I'd throw it at you. <laughs> I can throw some stats at you too. The only players no, during her career I mean, outside of, <laughs> I was gonna say outside of Serena to reach number one are Kerber, Azarenka, and Ivanovich, Kuznetsova, yeah. Kvitova, Lina, also Grand Slam champions, plus all the young players. But I mean Caroline Wozniacki was world number one for a while and she was very, very good. Yeah. I think that, you know, I, I would have her go down as like at least probably in the top gosh i don't know definitely top 50 higher i would say higher than what most people would rank her you know i think there's always that conversation around let's say an anna kornikova and of course like she does not compare to what woes uh what woes accomplished but there's always that conversation of like i hate the comment of well she didn't win anything 
uh, or you know, like Wozniacki could never win a Grand Slam. Well, winning a sorry, like winning a championship is really hard. In case you haven't noticed, uh, and by the way, look at what Serena Williams is doing. And I hope everybody appreciates how hard it is to win a championship or a Grand Slam. Because, you know, ever since she had the kid and now she's been in, what, four Grand Slam finals and she hasn't been able to pull through on one of them. It's really hard to do that. Um, but I think the thing about Woes is that she was extremely consistent, not just with her play, but her performance time and time and time again. Um, I don't know how many weeks she was at number one, but there were, I mean, she was there. She ended the year end number one, what, several times, right? Um, uh, she, yeah, multiple year end number one. Uh, she did 2010, 2011, back to back. Some lazy internet research says her net worth somewhere between 30 million and 185 million. Sorry, that's she's in my stats. Seri- no, like she's made a lot of money, and that's not just from endorsements, though. That's just sheer consistent play, getting to the WTA singles titles over the course of her career. Um, you know, getting to the quarterfinals, semifinals of Grand Slams or Indian Wells, whatever it is. She's just been really consistent. And ever it's it's really started when she was a junior. I mean, she won the Wimbledon uh, Junior Grand Slam. Uh, she also won multiple titles in doubles as well. And she was just, I don't know. I don't know what else. Uh, consistent is such a ho-hum word. But it's really hard to be consistent at that level. And I think that's like the one thing that, that people should really appreciate about her. It's just how consistent she was able to be for so long. I, I did some, again, some simple stats, but she is, yeah, beyond the Grand Slam title. She won a WTA Finals title in 2017, six Premier Mandatory titles, uh, 25 singles titles in her career, 55 total finals in her career. Uh, yeah, she she was an exceptional tennis player, and you know, in terms of the players over the course of her career, by comparison, she's I put her right around, you know, the Azarenka's, the Kuznetsova's, the Petra Kvitova's of yeah. the world, because she's been just as good as all of those players now Azarenka and Kvitova maybe a little bit higher of an upside just the way on their best day they can hit you off the court that Mm -hmm. was a gear Caroline Wozniacki may never have had and of course Wozniacki's biggest Achilles heel uh two and 17 lifetime against the Williams sisters that was you know the biggest thorn in her side the fed the reason she didn't win more grand slam titles was because you know the difficulty she had with Serena and Venus but I mean to say she was one of the five best players on the WTA Tour throughout the course of her career, that's a testament to how consistently excellent she was. The fact that, you're right, it was how physically fit. You you know, you never had to worry, even with a nagging injury, she's going to play through it. She's going to do all of these different things. Uh, just an incredible career for her. And you're right, beyond the tennis, she was someone who... I uh, did the Harvard business course. Now it's not, you know, that's not the most extravagant thing, but that shows what she is interested in those <laughs> yeah. sorts of things. Uh, there is, uh, I think we're going to have a really enjoyable experience for Caroline Wozniacki and what we're going to see from her after tennis. It wouldn't shock me if she did some media stuff as well. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I will say that, like, I think she has a great, uh, she has great role models. You know, both, she says that both of her parents being former professional athletes, raising kids together and having been together for 30 plus years that's played a huge role in her you know in her vision beyond tennis which is which is really good you know not not everybody has those type of role models yeah, and it, it's, it's been a really fun career for Wozniacki. It's sad that it, it, that was it the first sad. player, her and Burdich and Ferrer. That's like the first cohort of players I really grew up and got to mm. see rise up the rankings. So, And, you know, Federer, I don't know if he'll ever retire. I feel like he's someone who will just be like, yeah, I'll play every slam each year. That's fine. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it, it is. we are slowly inching towards this generation of tennis players phasing out. So it does feel a little bit weird. I got to say, the, the people that I know on the tour, it's getting less and less and less and less. Like, that are my <laughs> age, you know? So, it's, yeah. uh, yep, we're, we're all getting old. Yeah. As, long, <laughs> as, as long as Martina Hingis keeps playing, you should feel fine. Like, she could, <laughs> yeah. she's going to be out there forever. And so, That's again, true. It's, she is. Yeah, she's so definitely. I don't think... She's got at least 30 more years. Yeah, at least. I at mean, least. That, and then she'll start her mixed doubles career. Exactly. Uh, so that's, 
for that's sure. when the real that's when the real fun will start but <laughs> you have been so kind with your time i really appreciate it. i want to ask just you know a couple more questions because i mentioned at the top we are headed to the national indoors this weekend in chicago uh, for the women's ita championships you were part of the duke team that won the first ita national indoor championship in program history uh curious if you can tell me you know your thoughts on the national indoors what it meant to your team at the time hmm. it was such a spe- such a special experience um yeah i mean i i guess most of most of your listeners i assume are tennis fans so they all understand the dynamics of national indoors but for those that don't know about the college game um you know the team the, the fall is for individual is more just the individual season. Um, and then the spring is when you do the team events. And so it starts in January. The weird thing about national indoors is that uh, the top 16, it's still top 16, right? Teams that come that are invited. Yep. Okay. Yep. So the top 16 teams are invited to this tournament, but it's in February. So it's kind of like, it's not even in the middle of the team season. It's like pretty early on. So that means that you probably only have three, four team matches under your belt. And if you're a freshman, that's a huge, like you're kind of thrown into the fire thing. And so when you go to national team indoors, whether for me it was um, in Madison, Wisconsin, and it's in indoors. And so it gets really loud. It's just an electric environment. Like you go from playing a couple warm up frou frou matches and where you're on the court for maybe like 30 minutes and you're crushing people. And then you play against the best of the best and it gets dicey in there. It's just, it's a lot of fun and it's so intense. Um, and it was my senior year uh, in Madison, Wisconsin, where we, we won the whole thing and we beat Florida in the finals. And that was, uh, that was the first national title in program history. And then shortly after that, we earned the number one ranking for the first time in program history. We didn't really, we weren't really able to back it up in the NCAA tournament. We lost to Florida in the semifinals, which is so brutal. Um, but it was, it was so, it was amazing to be a part of that. Yeah, I, you're right. The fact that it is a national championship so early in the season. Uh, I've asked some coaches this, but in the moment, and I know, you know, it's it's not that far back, but do you weigh that national indoor, that early national championship the same as May, or is it just really, you know, you use this as your chance to see the best teams in the country to get ready for May? Uh, it's still It's still a huge accomplishment. But the, the real national championship later in the season is like the real deal. Mm-hmm. Um, not to say that that's not the real deal, uh, but it's, you know, the, the NCAA tournament, the team event, it's outdoors, you know, typically in California. Like that's when everybody's like in full grind, full speed. They've got all their players probably healthy. You know, because like earlier in the season, in February, national indoors, People are still kind of tinkering with some things. People might still be coming back from injury, what, ha- what have you. So um, it's a huge accomplishment. But, you know, the, the NCAA tournament, like that's where you want to be holding up the hardware. Yeah, of course, yeah. ITA is great, but those four letters, NCAA, does mean a little bit more. Uh, yeah. Your Duke team, just so you know, taking on number six seed Pepperdine in the first round. Yeah, Pepperdine. I know some people. I uh, have a I have one friend in particular that's an assistant coach over at uh, at Pepperdine, and um, you know what? You know, at at this tournament, w- the conditions actually come into a really big become a big factor. So I was going to say, if it if this was the NCAA tournament, it's like okay, I would say I would probably say Duke overall, um, but if, because it's indoors and it's freezing cold. And the court is going to be so fast. Pepperdine is not going to be prepared for that because they get to hang out in sunny, sunshine, warm California weather all season long. So if you go to freezing temperatures and you have to play indoors on a lightning type court, like they're going to be at a serious disadvantage. <laughs> no, and I'm I, not just I, saying that because it's against Duke. Like I would say that <laughs> about anybody who plays outdoors. Like, yeah. Well, I know Duke has an indoor facility. I don't even yeah. know if Pepperdine does because why would they need one? No, they don't. Why would you? So, it's California. That's what I'm saying. You're in Malibu. Like, I want to yeah. see the beach at all times. No, um, you don't have indoor courts in Malibu. <laughs> yeah, under no circumstance are you playing indoors. So, yeah, it will be interesting to 
watch. Um, but Prim, uh, again, thank you so much for taking the time. One more time for our listeners, uh, if they enjoy the first half of the set, they want to hear your discussions uh, with professional athletes such as Doug Baldwin, uh, such as Jonathan Vilma. By the way, can you can you let us know, sneak peek, any tennis players on the horizon? Yeah, man. My childhood buddy, Andy Roddick, 2003 U.S. Open champ, the only and well, the last American male to win a Grand Slam. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's going to be two yeah. weeks? Uh, I got to look at the guest lineup. Um, we have it in the bag, and we're thinking probably, I'd say probably around March, which is when the whole Indian Wells, Miami, uh, so probably March. But it's a really cool conversation. Like, you don't want to miss it. I don't want to, how can I tease it without giving too much of it? But, I mean, him and I have <laughs> known each other since we're 12, 13 years old, and we dissect our childhood and talk about like the differences and what potentially what factors might have led him to achieve a greater success than maybe other people like myself uh, that came from tennis academies. And we also talk about his his day when he retired at the U.S. Open. I was I was there that day in 2012. So that's good. That's re- that's really cool. Any Saddlebrook smack talk? Uh, I wouldn't say smack talk. I mean, at this <laughs> point, yeah, no. No smack talk, but I mean, he left, he was only there for about two years, but he does talk about like what the benefits of leaving the tennis academy setting and how that helped him. Um, and it kind of, kind of goes along with the, um, you know, what I mentioned earlier about multiple sports and specialization. It allowed him to have a little bit more balance in life. And for him, that was really beneficial. Yeah. And I, I said it earlier, but I believe you can find the next chapter wherever you listen to your podcasts. Yep. Spotify, Apple, find it on The Athletic, pretty much everywhere. I love it. That's so awesome. Well, Prim, thank you so much again. You have an open invitation anytime you want to come back on our Cracked Rackets podcast. And, you know, I really look forward to continuing to listen to the next chapter. So good luck to you with everything. Thank you, Alex. And uh, drive safely. I don't know if your parents would be pleased that you're working while driving, (laughs) especially in such a cold, wintry, potentially icy place and the next time i come on um i need a longer poem from you (laughs) (laughs) you know you are not the first person to request that ty tucker did not like what i rhymed his last name with and i think you can guess uh the word i went with for tucker uh (laughs) but yes i uh i i appreciate you saying that spoken like my mother although she would say oh you're not she would say oh you're not driving good i'm glad you're being productive so maybe that's the only difference but yeah thank you so much for him and take care all right alex thank you